Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Ephesians chapter 1, I know none of you could guess that's where we were headed this morning. We've only been there, this is starting our sixth month in the book of Ephesians, and we've almost made it through verse 14. I didn't hear anybody groan. If you're visiting this morning, that doesn't mean we're really slow in our learning process. We're just really thorough in understanding what God says. You know, we took off in the very beginning and understood who the writer was and Paul, who the churches were, even though it's named Ephesians. It was a circular letter that was sent to all the churches in the area. And we looked at all those churches over in the book of of Revelation and got an understanding of who they were and why this letter is so important and was so important to them. And, And now we've jumped into understanding a little bit more about the letter. So if you found that book of Ephesians in your Bible, if you would stand with me and let's read through those uh, verses that hopefully we will close out today. The longest sentence in the New Testament, not in our English Bible because we broke it down and put in punctuation, but in the original Greek language, it was the longest sentence in that New Testament. It starts in verse 3 of chapter 1 and we're going to read from verse 3 over the 14 where it actually ended and it reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved." In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we have read Your Word. Now you speak through me to expound on that, that we may take it into our hearts and apply it in our lives in the day to come. You be honored and glorified through the preaching of Your Word. This we pray in the name of the Word, Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Last week we started on one of the points that I had for these last two verses, and we made it through most of one of the points that we had, not through all of it. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Let me just real fast tell you this. We have talked about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification. Uh, we've gone from there to the doctrine of predestination. Those things are where God elected us. He justified us through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. He predetermined or predestined all of this to be done before earth was ever created. And then He went to redeem us. In other words, He, he purchased us from that life of sin that we chose to be in. And He placed us in the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He did that. He redeemed us 
for his good pleasure, it says. And now we're looking at the doctrine of eternal inheritance. When we think about inheritance, most times we think about something that's future, something we're going to get when someone passes away, something that's going to be left for us. But we looked at this particular passage and it says that we have obtained, in verse 11, an inheritance. In other words, that word, if you remember, we talked about last week, that have obtained in the Greek was something that was done previous, something that was done in eternity past for us. It's not something we have to wait on. It's already been given to us. It just hasn't manifested itself fully in us. Some it has, some it hasn't. Some of that inheritance will gain the day we walk into heaven. Some of that inheritance we have gained now because of of, uh, what God has done through His Holy Spirit and through Jesus in our lives. So we talked last week, we started talking about uh, who receives that inheritance. You remember we looked at verse 11 and we looked at that in Him, those who are in Jesus Christ, those who are saved in Jesus Christ. And we looked at those that are predestined, those that God had chosen to give that to. In other words, it was done by His good will we talked about. That proorizo, that word in Greek that means done in the past, it was something that was predetermined by God. And, and it, so it was those that have that. We went on to, to start talking about being sealed in that Holy Spirit last week because it tells us there that in verse 11, in Him we also have attained an inheritance, be, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to His counsel. And then it goes on to say that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So it was all done to the praise of His glory. Then He moves into 13 to tell us how it happened. It says, in Him again. In other words, those who are set in Him, you also trusted. You also took that word, it says, the, uh, after you heard the word. It says you took that word of truth and you trusted in that word of truth that gospel of your salvation, in him also having believed. In other words, you trusted in the true word of Jesus Christ, that gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection, and you believed on that. And then what happened? It says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Have you ever thought about being sealed? I think last week, maybe I didn't mention it, but I'll mention it this week. When I think about the word sealed, I think of a couple of things. The first is that rock rolled in front of the tomb. That upon it was stuck in wax. A signet ring was stuck in that wax on the front of it and it was sealed. It was sealed by the chief priest. It was sealed by the honchos. It was sealed by the head guys. That whoever would break the seal on that tomb would be put to death. And why was it done by the the governors at, at the request of the chief priests and those guys? Because the chief priests had heard Jesus say and his disciples say that he would rise again. So they wanted to make sure no one rolled that stone away and took that body out and could, in fact, proclaim that Jesus had risen. So they placed this seal on the the tomb and said, whoever breaks this seal is a dead man. So that's one seal that I think about. We know that Jesus broke that seal. He came out of that tomb. God rolled the stone away, not for Jesus to exit, but for man to enter, to see that Jesus had risen, just as he said. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away to rise again. It was just a few days later. He walked through a perfectly good wall in the upper room and scared to death 12 of his disciples that were gathered there, if you remember, because the door was locked and he just appeared in a room. He's able to do all things. He did not need the stone rolled away to rise again. He needed a stone rolled away so our faith would be in the fact that he had risen from the dead. But then when I think about a seal, I think about the book of Revelation. How many times in the book of Revelation does it say, He who is worthy to break the seal. He who is worthy to open the scroll. 
See, God has sealed eternity, future. And there's only one person that can unleash that eternity future, those plagues upon those who don't believe, and even unleash the the coming home to get us. There's only one that is worthy, and that's the beloved. That's the in him. That's the him part that you have been reading along with me in Ephesians. It's that one who has the power to rise from the dead and roll away the stone to prove that fact. It is the in him that has the power to break the seal on the scrolls to unleash the worst of the worst at end times upon those who chose not to believe. But here it talks about the seal of the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity. Have you ever as a Christian stopped and thought, I wonder if I really am saved? Be careful how you answer Most folks want to say no. But remember, (laughs) the Bible tells us we all have sinned and we all still sin and we all wonder sometimes. It's human nature. Sometimes because of the things that go on in our life and the things we choose to do, we have to stop and take inventory. We have to stop and say, I profess to be a Christian, but you know what? My life doesn't necessarily show it. I wonder if I'm really saved. How do you know? How do you know that you know? You see, the Bible tells us we're sealed just as that tomb was sealed. Just as those scrolls are sealed, we are sealed. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you ever wondered how Jesus could say, all that you have given me, I have lost none of. Have you ever wondered how Jesus can say that he has us in the palm of his hand and no one can take us away? He could say that because of the work of the Holy Spirit. See, he promised the day that he told the disciples, I would leave this earth, but I won't leave you alone. I will send you a comforter. I will send another to you. Why would he have to send another? Because we as humans, if we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't touch it, we don't necessarily believe it. But he said this, he said, I'm going back to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to send another, another just like me, in essence, to indwell you, this Holy Spirit. And that's the seal. And that's kind of where we left off last week. So let's talk about that Holy Spirit. How do you know beyond a shadow of doubt you've been saved and sanctified, redeemed? How do you know that you're saved for eternity? The Bible plainly tells us there's something subjective we can look at because last week we looked at the objective factors with being in him, being predestined, those facts, those objective facts that come out of the word. But you know, there's a subjective fact also. It's called being filled with the Holy Spirit. When I mention that in a Baptist congregation, you normally get a couple of different thought processes in that. The Baptists have been known for years as the frozen chosen, and there's a reason. They don't want to go on anything based on feelings. The Baptists are really reluctant to say that they could work off of anything feeling-wise. Because to do that, they think it sets themselves over in another category of believers. Notice I did say believers, known as our Pentecostal brethren. Those that put great emphasis on the feeling of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, they put so much emphasis on the feeling of the Spirit, they say there's a second feeling of the Spirit, not just one. I tell you, with all certainty, I believe from the Word, there is just one feeling of the Holy Spirit. Not that they're not saved. They've got a few things that it wouldn't hurt us to get a hold of in our life as Baptists. They actually have joy in their salvation because of something they feel. 
within them. The hardest thing for a Baptist preacher to do is preach to a bunch of pews filled with a bunch of people that aren't happy about being a Christian. And you know what it looks like from up here many times? That you're not happy to be a Christian. Wouldn't hurt my feelings a bit if a couple of you jumped up you this morning. The reason being is not that you are showing that you are more holy by being excited, but you're showing appreciation for what God's done because he plainly tells us in, over in Galatians that we all are filled with this Holy Spirit. Sometimes we don't want to mention that feeling we get from being filled by the Holy Spirit. That's filled as in F-I-L-L, and the feeling is a F-E-E-L, in case you're trying to take notes on that so that you spell it correctly. But there's this subjective thing that happens with us sometimes. Have you ever sat in a service and you could feel the presence of God in that service? And it was more so in one service than another? That's the subjectiveness of being secured, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's okay to tell your face that your body feels the presence of God. It's perfectly okay. Matter of fact, the more amens you say, the shorter my sermon gets. So be quiet. I have a whole bunch. Look at that. Well, I turned them on that time. But you know, sometimes you've got to take inventory of what God's done for you. He tells us in the book of Galatians, if you would just flip back over there to the book of Galatians, just back a couple of pages to the left there, the book of Galatians, right down in the 22nd verse. He says this about this spirit. He says in verse 22 of chapter 5, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now some say that that is one fruit because it says fruit of the Spirit, and all the others come out of that, even though there's a full-blown list. I believe they've hit on something. I really do. I believe it says fruit of the Spirit is love, and then it gives some ways that love shows up. It says joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So it gives us a list there. So we start with that love. It's a, the Greek word agape. Agape is the Greek word for that. And that word means affection or benevolence. Affection or benevolence. So we as a Christian, if we're filled with the Spirit, the outward example that we accept Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior and the Spirit indwells us, that outward example of it is going to be affection, and benevolence. Do you feel loved when you show up here at Morris Creek? Do you? I do. I love to show up. I can have the worst week in the world and I can come through the door and one of the little kids or one of the ladies is going to grab me and hug my neck. And you know what I feel? Agape. I feel this love. I feel this love. Not only do I feel it in your, your sincereness when you hug my neck or you call and ask how I am, but I feel it when you do things for me and for others, that benevolence that comes out of your love. How do you know you're secure in Christ? First thing, it comes out of you in love. It comes out of you in that that benevolence. And I wrote a note to myself, really, and I'll share it with you. It says, do you really love as God loves? That's the note I wrote to myself in my notes. And it says this. It says, number one, selflessly. How many of you set aside your plans for the day because somebody you know hurts? And you need to be there with them. How many of you take and stop and get a monster drink or two and a cup of coffee just so you can keep going, just so you can go visit somebody that's worse off than you? How many of you selfishly share that love that God's placed in your heart? And this is to me. 
It says this, the second word I used was completely. Completely. We're good at partially loving. It goes along with the selfless thing. We'll love right up to the point it hurts. Did we stop? I'm glad God didn't stop when it hurt. Because had he stopped when it hurt, when they went to drive the first nail, he yanked his hands back and said, I'm out. And we would have been in a place called hell. I'm so glad he loved me completely. Undeservedly. That's a big one for me. Undeservedly. You know, it's easy to love someone that deserves it. It's a little tough to love someone that doesn't. I've talked to you before about how our churches become little sects, become little cliques. We don't really want anybody to penetrate that. You've got to be like us. You've got to look like us. You've got to talk like us. And most importantly, in a Baptist church, you have to dress like us to be a part of us. You don't laugh, and there's a reason you don't laugh, because you know it's true. If today that door was to swing open while I was preaching, and a vagabond come dragging down the aisle with, with a knapsack over their shoulder, smelling funny, dressed funny, hadn't had a bath in a week, would you love them? See, because that's how Jesus loved. Because when you were covered in the filth of sin, when you were wearing the clothes of a sinful man, he loved you enough to crawl up on a cross and die for your sins. That's love. The last thing I wrote for myself was unto death. Are you willing to pay the ultimate price, as Christ says in the Bible, to lay down your life for another man? To put your life in the way of danger to save their life. That's love. That's agape. The second word there was joy. That second word, and it comes out of that love, and it's kara. It means to be cheerful, delightful, exceedingly glad. This is where the Baptist falls short. We love to share love. We love to have programs. We love to send money overseas. We love to have fellowships and eat. You love to, to give your pastor stuff like on my birthday. Thank you so much for the gift of my birthday. I appreciate your love for me. But you know what you could do for me most importantly? Act like you're happy to be saved. Put a little joy in your life. I'll be honest with you. If you walk around looking like you've been sucking on lemons, I don't want to be with you either, much less the lost folks. How are you going to invite somebody over to your house to eat if you look like what you just ate at lunchtime made you sick? Are they going to show up for supper? I don't think so. You've got to have enough joy in your life that people are attracted to you so that you can tell them about your Jesus. If you look like you've just been whipped at the whipping post out back, I don't want to hear about your Jesus. And neither does that lost guy that lives next door to you. You've got to have joy in your life. You've got to be filled with delight because of God's promises. If you can be happy about nothing else, you can be happy about the fact that God saved you through His Son, Jesus Christ, and you can be happy about the fact that every promise in the Word that He said applies to you as His son or daughter in Christ, and they're all true. If you can't be happy about those things, you're in the wrong place. The next one was peace. The next one was peace. Arane is the word for it, and it's a really neat thing. It, it actually means quietness. Or rest, quietness or rest. And the verb form of that actually means to join. To join. Have you ever thought about peace meaning to join? It's kind of neat that it says that because basically to have rest, to really have rest, it comes from a soul that's been joined to Jesus Christ and salvation. If you don't have rest in your life, I can tell you why. You don't know my Jesus. You see somebody that's having struggles in their life and they're going through hurts and pains, they're facing surgeries. 
your heart goes out to them, but then you talk to them. And in five minutes, they make you feel better because they say, you know what? It's all in God's hands. Jesus saved me. And if he decides to take me away, I'll be with him for eternity. What's the issue? That's rest. That's having peace in your life. The next word was long-suffering. This is a great big Greek word. It's makroth umea. Makroth umea. And it's kind of neat because it's one word that we generally break down into a long set of terms. But that particular word means forbearance or, or fortitude, I guess would be a good way to put it. But we normally translate it, and it's probably translated in your Bible, as patience. Patience. How many of you could use a good dose of patience? Anybody? <laughs> yes. If you could have seen me last night at 11 o'clock going, God, I know I don't have to tell you, but we ain't but just a few hours from me having to tell these folks something. And even though they don't mention it, they expect me to hit a home run every Sunday. There is no bunning. There is no striking out. They expect me to hit a home run. And God, one of us is having an issue, and it's probably not you. It's probably me. So I'm going to have a little patience. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to go to bed. I don't have a sermon. And if you don't give me one in the morning, we won't have one. Guess what he did at 3 o'clock this morning? He started nudging me. And about 4 o'clock, I got out of bed, and we have a sermon. Because I finally decided, you know what? I can't do it in my power. I can only do it in God's power. I had to have patience. had to have patience and, and wait on him. See, really, patience is most evident in our life when we have to have patience with someone who has done the wrong thing to us, doesn't it? You know, it's easy to have patience on God, waiting on Him to send us somewhere, but how easy is it to have patience when you're dealing with someone who's mistreating you? It's tough, isn't it? But sometimes we need to have patience. And why do I say we need to have patience with the person that's mistreating you? Most of the time, that person is unsaved. Most of the time, you're trying to be a witness to them. You know the greatest witness you can be to a lost neighbor that thinks you're nuts to be a Christian? You be patient. You keep sharing the gospel, and you be patient. You let God work in His time. He doesn't need your help. He needs your mouth. He needs your hands, because you're His presence on the earth. But He doesn't need your help. What He needs you to do is share the gospel and live the gospel. If we're a little more patient, there'd be a lot more people sitting in here. Because sometimes we give up way too quick. Way too quick. I've talked to some of you that have told me you've prayed for a loved one for 20 or 30 years wanting them to be saved. You know, they're just as saved at the end of that 20 or 30 years as they would have been at the end of 20 or 30 minutes. But it's all done in God's time. What would have happened if you'd have given up? I just think that's interesting. That having patience, kindness, kindness. Crustates, crustates is the Greek word for that. And, and we generally translate it in, in the, the more modern translations as goodness or gentleness. Goodness or gentleness. This is a tough one for me. I'm one when you ask me a question, I give you an answer. My wife says to me after I give you the answer, she says, don't you think you could have been a little more gentle? I said, well, it's the truth. She said, I'm not arguing that point with you. But couldn't you have been a little more gentle? You know, sometimes we just need to stop and think, how would I want to receive this answer? How would I want to receive the gospel presented to me? Would I want it to be harsh, beat over the head, carry the great big King James Bible to the door and use it to beat on the door and tell them, if you don't have one of these, you're going to hell? Or, or would I love to bump into you in the grocery store and, 
And you look at me and say, hey, I heard you've had some problems in your life, and you mind if I pray for you? They could both accomplish the same thing, but a lot of times you get a whole lot more flies with something sweet than you do with something sour. Be gentle. Let that gentleness flow out of you, that kindness. Goodness is the next word. Agathosune is the Greek word for it, the Greek word. And it really is a word that would be best translated virtue, which is kind of odd when you look at it. Instead of goodness, it would be virtue or a great big English word that none of us can spell or even use is benefits. Benefits. I was like, I'd never even seen that word. So I looked it up, wanted to see what it was. And it means moral and spiritual excellence manifested in kindness. Now, have you ever thought that the Greek word for goodness comes out of moral and spiritual excellence and it being manifested in something called kindness? You see, we think about goodness as doing something good for someone or taking care of a need or walking a little old lady across the street or or maybe getting the mail for the neighbor who has broken a leg and can't go out to the mailbox. So we think about that as being good. But this Greek word for goodness that's in this list of the fruit of the Spirit comes from your moral and spiritual standing. It's not saying don't go get the mail. It's not saying don't walk the little lady across the street. But are you doing it so somebody thinks that you are better than you are? Are you doing it because your heart's so stirred for them by the Holy Spirit that out of that spiritual standing of your heart, goodness flows out of your hands? And see, when it talks about goodness, it's not talking about goodness so that people know that you're good. It's talking about goodness because they know that your God is good. The next one was faithfulness. Faithfulness. It comes out of the root word pistos. Pistos is the word, and that word means assurance, belief, or fidelity. Assurance, belief, or fidelity. So when you look at this word faithfulness, you think about assurance. You think about belief. You think about fidelity. And when you apply that, it, it basically means this. It means to believe in things that are unseen is one of the ways that we translate this faith thing. But even more, it means this, to be trustworthy or loyal. I would dare say, if you looked around most of your companions at work, or most of those who you live around or, or walk around on a daily basis, trustworthiness and loyalness is a hard character to find today. Sadly, it's a hard character to find in our church today. You look at the number of people that you read about, you hear about on TV that proclaim to be good, outstanding Christians, but they're found to be less than faithful, less than trustworthy, less than loyal. You know why? Because they never grasp that love that selflessness, that completely loving someone, that putting others ahead of yourself. Somewhere within them, they still have this me, 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 I, I, I attitude. And that attitude leads to unfaithfulness. So because that spirit indwells us, coming out of us should be this faithfulness. But also with the next word, it is meekness. Meekness. What do you think of when I say the word meekness? Most folks think of a Casper Milk Toast, guy who's always being beaten down, the guy who always says yes even when he means no. He never wants to hurt anybody's feeling. He always goes along so that everybody loves him. 
They think about somebody being meek. Let me tell you how it's defined from the Greek. Praates is the actual Greek word, and it means gentleness or humility. Now, we just saw this gentleness in another word right ahead of that, and that was that kindness word. If you remember kindness, that was a word that... uh, basically says you have a broken heart for others, and it's from that broken heart for others that you're kind to them. Well, this meekness sort of ties into that. It actually best translated from the Greek to put into a phrase that's English would be submitting to the will of God makes you meek. That shows your meekness. It means being teachable. It means putting others first. It means willing to set aside preconceived ideas or traditions and go with what the Word says. Does that sound familiar in a Baptist church? The largest struggles most Baptist churches have is overcoming wrong traditions to move forward with what God really wants you to do. Are the wrong traditions bad? Some of those traditions are just fine. But a lot of those traditions are set up because that's the way we've always done it. You ever heard that said? When you want to change something, you say, I think we ought to do this. So we've never done it that way. My answer is, and you've never done it biblically, so let's start. See, being meek is realizing you don't have to be right if you can't back it up with God's word. Being meek is saying it's not what I want, it's what God said. And that's where we're going. It's not always going along and getting along. It's standing firm on what God said, but being gentle when you deliver that message. The last word there that is in that is that that word self-control. Self-control. A lot of times we we would use the word temperance maybe even, uh, just the way it's translated in some, and it's ingratia is the word in in Greek. Self-controlled or temperance. If you were to translate literally from the, from the Greek into our English language, to put it in a phrase, it would be a phrase that says, in part, taking control of your desires and wants. Taking control of your desires or wants. When I think about that particular term, I kind of find it interesting that it's put towards the end of the list. Because there's one thing that we struggle with in this body is our wants and desires. But can you see how that whole list ties together? Because to truly love as Christ love, your wants and desires are not important. To truly have joy in your life, you can't focus on what you want to get that you don't have. You have to focus on what you've already been given by God and be glad for it. See, to have peace in your life, you can't worry about where the next dollar's coming from or where the next item's coming from or what are you going to do this coming weekend. To be at peace, you have to join your heart to Jesus and set in the fact that He's already done all things. Before the beginning of time, He chose me to be His. Why do I have to worry about tomorrow? If He chose me before I ever was born to be His in Him and be filled with the Holy Spirit, what difference does tomorrow make? See, to truly have peace or long-suffering or kindness or goodness or faithfulness in our life, you must tackle those wants and desires of your heart. There's one thing that we don't like to deal with, and that's sin in our life. None of us like to recognize it. But the Bible tells us if we say we do not sin, we are a liar. 
It was written by John. You know who he wrote it to? You, the church. Not the lost, but you, the church. The book that's written in ends at the end of that book saying, I wrote these things that you would have the faith to believe that you are the body of Christ. That entire book, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all of those are written to the church. And in that he says, if you say you do not sin, you're a liar. So to sit in the pew and tell God I have nothing to come to the altar for, to ask for forgiveness for because I have not sinned is a slap in the face of a holy God. One of the things that we need as a church in whole and particularly as a church at Morris Creek is to repent of the sin in our life. God has told us that we are filled with the Holy Spirit in Galatians. He said you are filled with that Holy Spirit, but why is that Holy Spirit not activated in our lives and coming out in our hands and our feet and our mouth and our life in general? It's because we haven't dealt with that last thing on the list, that self-control. We're letting pride stand between us and being used by a holy God. There is something humbling to lay on your face at an altar. And tell God, I know you died upon a cross for my sins, but I haven't lived up to that standard. There are things in my life I need forgiveness for, and it shows up because it's not coming out of my hands, that fruit of the Spirit that's put in my heart. That Spirit is not activated in my life because I'm too prideful to admit that I'm not in control and God, you are. And as long as you sit in sin, unrepented, that'll be the story of your life. You see, because this guarantee of inheritance that, again, we've barely touched since I just finished last week's point, and you don't want to stay another hour for the other two, but that inheritance, that inheritance is guaranteed for us by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is activated in our life and becomes known to the world Because we are freely repenting of our sins. We're freely asking for forgiveness of our sins on a daily, hourly basis. If you can sin and it not bother your conscience, I would dare say you don't have a relationship with my Jesus. Because if Jesus has saved you, he's filled you with the Spirit. And where that Spirit is, sin cannot be for any extended period of time or there becomes this conflict in your life. This conflict that makes you question whether or not you know Jesus Christ. This conflict that makes you uneasy. That makes you sit in a place like this and hear a message and get uneasy. You see, the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin in your life both before you're saved and after you're saved. And this morning in a crowd this size, I know the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning to tell you there is something in your life that is not right. How do I know that? Because the pews aren't full. We're not having to throw the doors open and stand people in the yard. Because if we all were confessed up, forgiven, repented of our sins, and using the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been placed within us, this building could not contain the folks that want to know about your Jesus. See, the church is declining in America for one reason. Because the pride of the world has slipped in. The pride of the world has stepped in the door of the church and no one's noticed. We call for sinners to come repent, but we think once we've done that, we're done. 
We've got our ticket to heaven. We're finished. Talk to some of the saints that have been saved here for a long time and walked with God. And they'll talk to you about these mountaintop experiences. And they'll mention right behind it that there's these valleys in your spiritual life sometime. And it's in those valleys that God's trying to get your attention. And those valleys often come because you choose against the will of God to sin in your life. And you carry that sin through your life unrepentant. And it takes you from the mountaintop experience where you know the Holy Spirit's presence. You feel Him working in your life. You have this subjective tool that you know the Holy Spirit is there, therefore you're saved. And it takes you from that mountaintop experience and it dumps you in this valley. This valley of your own creation. This valley is created because you've sinned and you've refused to repent before a holy God for it. You see, to truly gain the inheritance, you must not only be in Christ, you must be willing to submit to Christ. Many of us want Him as our Savior. I've never, ever, ever witnessed to a person when I said, do you want to spend eternity in hell that they've go to? Absolutely. Never. I have never met a person that wanted to go to hell. Have you? I've never had a soul tell me that. But when I look at them and say, well, I know how you can go to heaven, but you must submit and allow the Lord to be the leader of your life, there are so many that say, I'll take him as Savior, but I'm not sure I want any of that lordship thing because I'm my own man. No. You're either led by the Lord or you're led by the devil. There is no middle ground. If you stand in the middle ground, you're not with the Lord, therefore that puts you with the devil. This morning I ask you this, where do you stand with God? I know many of you are saved. Many of you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if He were a peer this morning, and you had to stand before Him and answer for any sin that you have been so prideful you wouldn't ask for forgiveness for, how long would He stand there before you? Would it take you days to confess those things in your heart that you've hidden away, that you're scared for anybody to know? I tell you this morning, God knows all. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. He's seen everything you've ever done. But I tell you this, He loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. He loved you before you ever knew who He was. He loved you so much, He died for you personally. What would make you think that He wouldn't forgive you for that sin in your life? Do you want to feel that peace? Do you want to have that joy in your heart? Do you want to feel that closeness with God again? This morning you ask Him for forgiveness of those sins in your life and that spirit that's within you will commune with your spirit and it will testify that you are His. And you will walk with Him in a way you've never walked with Him before. This closeness that can only be brought by you can be obedient and confessing those sins in your life. Pray with me. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this morning you have even taken the message that you gave me at four and you've changed it again, even as I preach. And that is evidence to me, Father, that there's someone in this place that needs to know about the sin in their life and needs to ask for forgiveness of that sin. So I ask this of you, Father, that you move amongst us in the quietness of this place. Don't make us think about anything of the outside world. You block that out. Don't let us worry about what's for lunch or who we're going to see or what's on TV. But right now, you focus our attention on you. 
And in the quietness of this place, let us hear the soft shuffle of sandals feet as you walk past. As you stop and remind each one of us of that sin in our life that you're more than willing to forgive us of, you tell us that. But we first must confess it to you. This morning, Father, as your people do that, you cleanse them. You forgive them as only you can do. And you go on cleansing us and them from our unrighteousness. Not for our glory, but for your glory, that your will may be done. This morning, Father, we just want to say we love you. We thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that continued forgiveness you give us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells us, that reminds us daily that we are yours. We thank you so much for that. And all this we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. <laughs> 